Thankful for each one of you. It's a great family of faith we have here. Such wonderful, precious brothers and sisters. Starting in verse 1, this sermon is entitled Synthetic Worship. The Mighty One, God Yahweh, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. May our God come and not be silent. Fire devours before him and a storm whirls around him. He calls the heaven above and the earth to render justice to his people. Gather my holy ones, those who have cut a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. Hear, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine as well as its fullness. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of distress. I shall rescue you and you will glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recount my statutes and take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him. You associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and you harness together your tongue for deceit. You set and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me. And he who orders his way, I will show the salvation of God. Lord, we ask that you bless this time of exposition, the preaching of the word of God. May you glorify your great name in the salvation of your people, in the sanctification of your church, Lord, and in the honoring and magnifying of the worth glory, and preeminence of our God. Help me, Lord, strengthen me, Lord, and help each one of us. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God says to the church, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the first part of this, 1 through 15, and we saw in verses 1 through 6 the object of worship. We see in verse 1 that there's a threefold mention of the Lord with three different names, the Mighty One, El, God, Elohim, and Yahweh, or the Lord in so many English translations, each one of them is a specific meaning. John Gill, the Hebrew scholar, Puritan Baptist, said that this is an expression of the Trinity, 
of our triune God, whether or not it is. I, if I was going to make a mistake, I would err with Dr. Gill in that. But here we see the object of worship is being called into view, that we are to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And we saw this last week, but Israel, the one that got the people that God had called out of darkness, the ones that he had set apart to make himself known and to demonstrate his glory to the ends of the earth had fallen in, fallen into ritualism and instead of heartfelt worship of gratitude. He's rebuking them starting in verse 7 and running all the way through um, verse uh, 15, rebuking them and lining them out and showing them that their offerings that they're bringing is with a, a, a false pretense. So it's as if because of the wrong view of God, they think that they're doing God a great service instead of seeing that God has done a great service in the sacrificial system that points to Christ to show that we're sinners are in need of a substitute who God would send in the fullness of time. So because of this wrong view of God, we see in the first six verses, there is a powerful delineation of who God is. He shows that he is a God that has revealed himself in verse one to his people. It says this is the, the mighty one, God, the Lord or Yahweh has spoken. He's given to us his inerrant, infallible word. He's revealed himself to us in scripture. And the basis of divine worship is divine truth. Divine truth is what reveals to us the magnificent glories of God and shows us his, how exalted and wonderful that he is. So we worship in spirit and in truth. Secondly, we saw his habitation that God glorifies himself through his church. It says in verse two, out of Zion, perf the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth that we are a city set on a hill, Jesus says that we're the light of the world and that we're not to have a, a bushel put over this light, but yet it is to shine. And what do we shine? We proclaim the glories and excellencies of God who's called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. We are the temple of God, that the church is the very dwelling place of God out of Zion, out of the Lord's church. We are the true Zion. We are the people that have been ransomed, paid for by the high price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. So not only do we see his glories in his revelation in scripture, that there is a sense by which his glory shine forth through his church. And then we saw this manifestation in verses uh, starting in verse three and, and, and also in verse four, these these verses that really are kind of a showcase of God revealing himself at Sinai with great thunders and lightnings and these great demonstrations and manifestations. You find that in Exodus 19 verses 17 and 18, that when Moses brought the people of God up out of the camp to meet the Lord, they stood at the foot of the mountain and it says that Sinai was all up in smoke because the Lord descended upon in, in fire. And smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain was quaking violently. So here we see God has shown himself. He's manifested himself to his people, but especially those of us that are in the church. He's revealed himself in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the exact radiance and exact duplicate of the nature of God. The Greek literally says in Hebrews 1.3 that he's the icon of God that he is God incarnate. If you've seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. Then we see the declaration in verses five and six 
The declaration is that the godly ones are to be gathered who have made a covenant with the Lord by sacrifice that the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is the judge. The declaration is, is that it's time for judgment to begin at the house of the Lord, right? That God's coming judgment to his people, his covenant ones. It just goes to show how far off track God's elect can get off base. Here we see Israel or going through the motions of worship. They're going through the ceremony. They're going through the ritual, but yet there's not a, a sense of gratitude in their heart. They're going through the motions of it, but there's not any affection there for Yahweh that God has provided for them, the sacrificial system to showcase for them the redemptive nature of God towards his people and that God has made a way for them to be uh, brought to him and to be reconciled to him because they are all sinners and need this reconciliation by the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. But they took some sort of sick satisfaction and just going through the motions and they're making sacrifice of their young bulls and their goats and their shedding of the blood before the Lord as if God was hungry and as, as if God needed something from man, as if God was somehow in his nature deficient or not complete in himself, that he needs man to satisfy him. And God says, you've got it all wrong. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You, you don't, you aren't getting this right. Your head's not screwed on straight. And he goes down and delineates to them that the problem is that you think too lowly of me. You think that I'm like you. And so we see that part of the problem is that they had a wrong view of God and God is objecting to their worship. The worship was, uh, it was synthetic. It was not authentic. It was something that had been, it was mustered up in the religious ritualism of man. And it was formalistic and tepid and lukewarm. And their hearts were afar off from the Lord. And God calls them out on it. He says, judgment's beginning with my house. My people are worshiping who they know not. That they don't know the God of the Bible. They don't know the God that brought them out of Egypt. They don't know the God that split the Red Sea. They don't know the God that provided manna and quail in the wilderness and and the shade of a cloud by day and a fire by night to guide them, to lead them. They don't know me. They're offering up sacrifices without thankful hearts. They've forgotten God. And we see in verse 14 and 15 that the people had a wrong motivation for worship and God's calling them out on that. And he says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue and honor me. God is saying, this is what you should have been doing, but this is not what you have been doing. You're going through all the motions of worship, but yet there's no affection. There is no thanksgiving. There is no holy desire to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That you're coming into this, to the sacrificial system and thinking that the system itself is what is satisfactory to me when it's not. It's a heart that is thankful. That's what I'm looking for. Well, tonight we're going to look at verses 16 through 21 and then on to the end of the chapter. We want to look at those who are ostracized from worship, and then we'll conclude with the objectives for worshipers as we will close this out tonight. So let's look at verse 16 through 21 together. These, this is addressing the wicked, verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recount my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. 
You let your mouth loose in evil. You harness your tongue for deceit. You set and speak against your brother. You slander your mother's, your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you, but I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. It's very evident here that these who were involved in worship were patently wicked, but yet at the same time, they're in proximity to the Lord's house and people. It's very clear from the text that these are those whose hearts have never changed. They're in the sphere of worship, and they're offering up sacrifices, and they're doing so out of hearts that are depraved. And God is saying, I'm not going to receive it. I will hear, I will have none of it. This is not the correction of God's people as what we find in the previous pericope. This is the rejection of the wicked and their religious service. It's, it's, it's sheer hypocrisy. These feet are walking one direction and their mouths are singing another direction. James Montgomery Boyce says that these are the quote unquote alleged people of God. These are the pretenders, not the contenders. These are those that suppose that they can worship God all the while be disobeying him simultaneously. These are those who have a profession of faith without any faith in possession. These are those who make a profession of a creed but have no possession of God. These are those that are mechanical and cold and dead in sin and they're wicked in their heart. And God says, you're ostracized from worship. I will have none of it. I will hear none of it. They have lip service. They have no heart affection. They have a name, like it says in Revelation 3.1, they have a name that they are alive, but they are dead. God will not receive any lip service nor will God receive any worship or offering from those who are his enemies. They're even worse than the religious pretenders of Amos' day. In Amos 5.19, God rebuked those and he says, Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God says, take away from me the noise of your songs. I'm not even listening to one sound of your harps. I'm done with it, God says. The reasons for it are given in verses 16 through 21a. God is indicting these wicked worshipers who are religious in the way that they talk, but wicked in the way that they walk. God says to them in verse 16, look at it with me, what right have you to tell my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth. God is looking at them and saying, who do you think you are? You have no right to approach me. You have no right to have my words, the covenant in your mouth and upon your lips. You're not mine. These are those who are religious externally, but devils internally. These, these are those that want to go to heaven, but they don't want to leave the world. They don't want to burn in eternal fire, but they don't want to live holy lives. They have no delight in Yahweh. They want redemption from hell, but not deliverance from sin. Are you with me? Sounds like the modern church, doesn't it? That we want redemption from hell, but we don't want deliverance from sin. And God is telling these wicked, starting in verse 16, that they're Worship is polluted, and because of this, it's rejected. 
Mind you, these are not God's people that are struggling and have grown cold. These are not God's covenant people that have fallen back. Those were delineated in verses 7 through 15. These are Satan's children that are hypocrites and liars that have drifted into the sphere of God's people using the right kind of language, knowing the right religious words to speak, but yet are devils incognito. Note in verse 17 that God rejects them. He, he identifies the reason that he rejects them. He says, foremost, because they hate God's word. Verse 17 says, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. It really shows the heart of the matter, doesn't it? They hate God's word. They cast God's word behind them. That means this. It's not front and center to them. It's behind them. It's not in their periphery. It's something behind them that they're walking away from. I mean, men don't walk around backwards everywhere they go. God sets his word in front of his people. My word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It's something that is in front of them. But here we find that these wicked men, although they're in their religious motions, they're in the assembly of the true people of God, they reject the word of God and they reject it by the way they live. The word of God is behind them, not in front of them. The path of righteousness is always in front of the people of God, right? Right? I mean, I think of that in the morning when I get up, but I'm going to pursue the Lord. I never think about going backwards. I don't ever think about walking into what I once was. I always think in terms of the word of God being illumined in front of me and to pursue it and go forward towards the mark of the high call in Jesus Christ and not going back into the things of the world. My text in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 as I've been doing my historical background and research on that, we find that they find it strange whenever you don't run into the same dissipation that you used to with them. You're no longer involved in these drinking parties. You're no longer involved in the sexual exploitation of others. You're changed. You're not who you were. And here we find that the Lord is rebuking these wicked, saying, you hate discipline, because the Lord disciplines his own, right? And you cast my words, the truth of God behind you. A true Christian has the word of God front and center to them. It is the foundation of our life. It is the fuel for our life. It is the joy and the strength and the purpose for our life. We set it in front of us before all else. And Christ has preeminence to us. God's breathed out word that's been given of divine inspiration has been given to us in 66 canonized books. But here we find the wicked that are in the proximity to the church. They're going through the motion. They're offering up sacrifices. They're repeating the words of the covenant. And God says, the words that you're repeating are fraud. And they're not even your words. They're my words. Quit talking them. You're not mine. You hate my words. Listen, if we don't love the word of God, our worship is a farce. Here we find these 
that are in the sphere and the proximity of the people of God, casting the word of God behind them, it's invaluable to them. And as I mentioned in verse 16, they talk about the statutes of God. They talk about the covenant rights of the people of God. But at the same time, they're casting the words of the Lord behind them. And they despise or hate discipline. Literally means instruction. That's the way the Greek translation of the Old Testament would render it. You hate instruction. It's better fitting to the context, I think. They hate the discipline of divine instruction. But yet the people of God we know in John 10 know the voice of Christ and they follow the voice of Christ. Why do we do that? Why do we obey this book? Because we have believed that it is the very words of God. You have men of old like William Tyndale have actually been martyred for this book. Ridley and Latimer burning to death at the stake over the truth of this book. As they would not recant. Martin Luther, when called to recant before the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation years, I cannot recant on what I have written because it is the word of God. It is not right for a man to go against his conscience. I cannot do any other. Here I stand. God help me. May that be our heart, right? If these are those that hear the word of God, they reject what they hear. They don't practice it. Now listen, they come to church and they hear preaching like this and then they walk out the door and all the words stay here. They have no desire to walk with it. They cast it behind them. They walk out of the church. They walk back out into ordinary life. And the words of the Lord remain in the church. And you don't see any visible difference in their life. You can quote it. You have the words of my covenant in your mouth. But they won't apply it. You can sing it. But they refuse to live it. And they cast it behind them. You know what's behind you? Refuse. Refuse. And that's the way they consider the word of the Lord. They treat it as though it is dumb. Paul is writing to Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. He's giving some eschatological truths. And it talks about in the last days that there will be those that fall prey to the, the evil one. And here's why. Verse 7 of chapter 2. Because they did not receive the love of the truth and so be saved. They didn't receive the love of the truth, the love of the scriptures. The testimony of the wicked is that they put the words of the Lord behind them. The testimony of the believer is found in Psalm 119, verse 11. For your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. What is a great guard against a sinful life? A treasuring of the word of God. That our path is illumined by the light of divine reality, divine revelation. And those who cast the word of God behind them will themselves be cast behind God eternally. God will cast them into outer darkness. Secondly, God identifies and rejects these people and will not receive their worship because they violate God's law. Verse 18 to 20, look at it with me. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. 
You let your mouth loose in the evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Here you have thief, stealing. You have adultery. You associate with adulterers. It's talking about being in relationships with seductive adulteresses and adulterers. Their mouths run loose in evil. Tongues are framing of deceit slandering even of those that are in family covenant. Hereby enlarged, these are violations of the second tablet of the law of God. The Lord Jesus told us the two commandments most expressly given in loving the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. And you're not loving your neighbor whenever you're stealing from him, whenever your tongue is wagging deceit, framing deceit and speaking evil against even a biological brother and associating with an adulterer. Not only are these people vertically amiss, vertically cut off, they're horizontally amiss. Deviant towards other people, lawbreakers, antinomians, lawless ones. They can quote the law, but they have no desire to perform it. They're against law. That's an antinomian. Nomos, law, anti, against. And by the way, it's very clear the application here is strictly to those who are in evangelical churches. Whitewashed. Outwardly, they appear clean. Inwardly, full of dead man's bones. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 27 and 8, you are like whitewashed tombs, which are on the outside appearing beautiful, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These are hard issues. Holding on to a profession of faith, but the heart not being changed, dark and wicked. Having no power to live a godly life, nor no desire. These are those that have not been changed by the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. Their lips are offering up praise, but their hearts are far off. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 7 and 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain do they worship me. The only way you can have an affectionate heart with thanksgiving and worship for God is if you are regenerated. If you've been brought out of death into life, that you have affection in your soul for the Lord, a love for the word of God that is willing to even go to death for the Lord. God must make you alive first. And these are not. is so rampant in the church today and the modern church is full of people that praise but their hearts are far off churches to where they disobey and rebel against god's design in the church and have women as pastors and the word of god strictly forbids it and what is worse than that is that you have a strong presence of the LGBT, not only confirming, but part of it themselves in leadership in the church. All under the banner that God is love. But his love's a holy love, and his eyes are too holy, Habakkuk too, to be approving of evil. Third 
Third, we see that God identifies and rejects them. Clearly, he's, he's, he's rejecting their worship. He says, I don't want it. Because they malign his nature. Verse 21. These things you have done and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. God's patience was mistaken to be negligence, right? They felt because God didn't immediately judge them that their course of sin would be inconsequential to them. I was still alive, so it must not be that bad. Not like Jannies and Jambres who worshiped falsely and then were struck dead. Aaron's sons that offered up strange fire to the Lord and God smote them. But here we find, because God has been patient and forbearing and has not dealt with them and judged them and cast them into eternal damnation that their sin is not as grievous as they formerly thought. It's not that big of a deal. The word of the Lord's not that big of a deal. The worship system, not that big of a deal. My lifestyle, not that big of a deal. God's not done anything to me yet. I'm fine. Witness with my own eyes. A pastor of a Lutheran church dressed up as a drag queen in front of their little bitty children and dancing a seductive, wicked, perverse dance inside of a church. What is that other than this? God's not done anything to me, so we're just going to take it further. Keep pushing the envelope. Not knowing, God says, I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. I will call you front and center. I will be both judge, prosecutor, and executioner. It really messes with our modern view of God when we read verses like in 22 part B, lest I tear you to pieces and there will be none to deliver. Yahweh talks there. The cuddly Jesus is not in view there. This is a God that takes his holiness very seriously. Here we find in verse 21 a misunderstanding of the patience of God. The patience of God, Romans 2, 4, is to lead us to repentance. But they would not repent. Their love of sin was a clear affront to the holiness of God. They thought God had forgotten or maybe had grown lax in his old age about their sin. They felt that God was no longer concerned for the holiness of his name. So now they're continuing to plow on in their graven wickedness because their view of God was wrong. Their idea of God was lessened. Perception of the holiness of God become dulled. And they pursued sin because their view of God was amiss. And they began to feel that God was not opposed to sin. And not only that, their view of God not only corrupted their worship, it corrupted their whole lifestyle. American church views God and humanistic ideas and terms. Anthropomorphic ideas that are grossly wrong. 
anthropomorphisms or human terms given to make designations to God because God doesn't have a body. He's spirit. When it says the eyes of the Lord run into and fro over the whole earth, God does not have tangible eyes like what you and I do. The right hand of the Lord, God does not have a right hand. Those are anthropomorphisms. It's giving, just, it helps people like you and me understand what the text is saying by giving a semblance of these humanistic, humanistic uh, body functions to God who doesn't have a body. So we understand the point of the text. As a result of this wrongful view of God, sin becomes minimized, holiness becomes marginalized, and then the lifestyles coincide with that. And the result is that worship is radically, radically amiss. Low theology, Grace Life Church, is the foundation for low doxology. Doxology is praise. Having a low view of God, a low view of Scripture leads to a low view of worship and a low view of holy living. They think God's like them. They think God is all mercy and no holiness. They think God is all forgiveness and no justice and how wrong they were. Verse 21, note the response of the Lord. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Grace Life Church, hear me. Never misunderstand the patience of God to be forgetfulness or neglect. Paul is writing to the believers in Rome and says that God is storing up his wrath, waiting the day of his wrath. There's a moment where the cup of God's wrath is filled. Revelation 14.10. There's a day of reckoning. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14.10. God will not un let unrepentant sin slide. He calls sinners to account for their sin and that there is an end to the patience of God as Ryan Lemming so rightly preached recently. There's a day of judgment that's in, in wait. There is a day of sowing, but there's also a day of reaping and God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. God was challenging wayward Israel in Haggai 1.7, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Maybe you're here tonight and playing games with God. Maybe you're going through the motions. Maybe you have your feet in the church, but your heart is in the world. Maybe you love to come into the proximity of church, but you also love the world. You have a love affair, and it is a dual love affair. You love both. And God says you cannot serve two masters. Israel said, well... It must be okay. God's not done anything to me yet. First Peter 4, 5 says he will call us to account for our sins. Verses 22 and 23 give objectives for the worshipers. He's simply giving a warning and then giving some encouragement as we come to the end of the chapter. If you'll look at it with me, now consider this. These are objectives for worshipers, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me. And he who orders his way, I shall show the salvation of God. 
First of all, the worshipers here are commanded to consider God. Verse 22, consider God. All of us must appear at the judgment seat. All of us must grapple with and contend with God and that we must contend with God's peace treaty now or God's fury later. And he's saying, grapple with this. Consider. As he spoke to the children of God in Haggai, consider your ways. Here he's saying, consider this, you who forget God. That means that whenever you come into the proximity of the people of God and you go out, you forget God. On Monday night, you forget God. On Thursday, you forget God. On Saturday night, you act as though you're the world. You're in the presence of adulterers. You're living a lascivious life, a wicked life. He says, consider your ways. He says, you have forgotten God. Consider, he says, you who forget God. This is one of the most stark warnings in Scripture. The Hebrew author said, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One of the most gross abuses of the modern church is that we do not worship a God to be feared any longer. He's a confused God of moral mush. He doesn't know where he stands on issues. He's just all-inclusive and all-embracing. No! No! God hates sin so much and he loves his people so much that he sent his own son to die a brutal, barbaric, torturous death on the cross. Verse 22, look at it with me. I mean, let your eyes lock on this. You and I need this. Consider this. What do we consider? Those who forget God, I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. The, term for peace, the, the, the terms of peace are all written out in Psalm 2. Kiss the son, do, do homage to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It's the same truth, different words to support it. Literally what he's saying, he says, submit to me or be damned forever. Stop replaying religious games and come to Jesus in humility. Come to Jesus in dependency. The dependence upon him. Consider what he's done for guilty sinners like all of us. Listen to the terms of peace. He will not negotiate with us. The second truth we have that worshipers are commanded to consecrate to God. Look at verse 2 and 22 and we'll close. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright... I shall show the salvation of God. God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, worshipped for who He is. He calls us to bring oblations of gratitude, to show thankfulness for not only who He is, yes, but also for what He's done for us in His Son. This should flow over into holy living because of what He's done. It should flow over into acts of obedience and true, heartfelt, gratitude-fueled worship. It's the thankful Christian that consecrates their entire life to Christ. 
It's the person that's filled with gratitude that desires to walk in the narrow way and to please God because true gratitude fuels obedience. True worship is a lifestyle that honors God through obedience. What we say is critical, but how we live is truly characteristic of who we are. And here the Lord is saying, I want more from you than lip service. He wants his church, his people, to be thankful and to be committed. To not just take the words of the covenant in the mouth and then they cast the words of God behind their back. It's only these that God shows the salvation of God. This is certainly not a secondary matter. To be sure we don't put these truths on the shelf of our mind and set them on pause to return at a later date to thank them over then. And then we're to worship him biblically and we're to worship him instantaneously and continually with genuine, true Worship that is filled with thanksgiving, gratitude. Fraudulent worship is falsehood underneath religious garments, and God hates it. May the Lord help us, right? To worship Him in spirit and in truth. Such powerful words. I don't know that there's a more suitable psalm for the modern church than this one. God's saying, I don't need what you have. I own everything. He says, the rocks will cry out and worship me. The Lord says, you need what I have. Be thankful to me for what I provide. Be thankful to me for what I have given in my son. For the way of reconciliation that I have secured. That I have devised that I have sacrificed and given and worship me with thanksgiving for what I have provided because I don't need anything you got. I don't need your money. I don't need your building. I don't need your piano. He says, but I long for you to be thankful for what I've done for you. Amen. Lord, may the word of the Lord be like arrows from the true archer scabbard that launch into our hearts, not to destroy, but to heal, not to condemn, but to revive. Lord, help us. Lord, I pray, Lord, for those in this audience that may not know you savingly, that they might be convicted by the Spirit and brought to repentance and that their hearts might be brought to you with all of their sin, all their shame, say, Lord, I need you. Only you can pardon. Only you can forgive. And Lord, that you will wash them white in the crimson blood of Calvary and that they might be reconciled, forgiven, given a new heart, new joy and peace, that they might worship you with a heart of thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for each member of Grace Life. Thank you for every particular member. I pray, Lord, that you'd work mightily, that the words of the Lord would be in front of them. 
that the lamp of truth might illumine the path in front of them, that they might walk in that straight and narrow way. Oh, Lord, convict us where we need. Encourage us as well when we, where we need. And empower us to give you what you demand of us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.